Your stories don't define you. How you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker of Elkins Consulting. Many of my clients reach out to me because they're in transition. Their children are hitting milestone ages. They want more from their work. They're hitting a big number birthday. And they want to develop clarity about their natural strengths, what their next adventure might look like. In this series, you'll hear me ask my guests questions to dig deeply into the stories that shaped their lives, stories that uncover patterns and may unveil insights into dissatisfaction and also where their strengths lie and where they found and continue to find joy. This podcast's intention is to have listeners think of their own related stories and how they tell them, discovering the internal messages that are limiting their success and discovering how to shift their stories so they become positive life lessons to move them forward. If you're curious about what it would be like to work with me, visit elkinsconsulting.com and schedule a one-time 90-minute StrengthsFinder session. I am so grateful today to be talking to Jonathan Klain, who was introduced to me by Scott Hanton, who will also be on the podcast in the near future. And um, it's so funny, we were just talking about why we met and how I met Scott and why that introduction, and we came to the conclusion that timing is everything. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. Sarah, thank you so much. I'm so flattered and just really thrilled. I, I caught a couple of your, your podcasts and I really enjoyed them. Thank you. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure that I have stories that are, you know, so impactful as the two that I listened to, but, you know, uh, I'm more than happy to share. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Well, I, I think most of the time people don't realize the stories that will inspire others until they discover them themselves. Mm. Um, and it's uh, the thing that I hear a lot is, oh, I didn't realize that my stories didn't have to be epic. No, <laughs> so, no they, don't, they certainly don't have to be. No, no. So um, you were going to, you were just about to tell me a little bit about yourself when I cut you off so that I could hit the record button. So why don't you share that? And then we'll go back to the first question I normally ask my guests. Sure. Well, I was just going to say that I got connected with Scott because through the company I work for, BioRaft, we do risk management um, software, mostly for laboratories, research labs, R&D, both academia and private industry. Scott is, I think his title is managing director or editorial director for um, for a lab management or a lab manager, uh, laboratory manager the uh, publication, et cetera, that it is. And I was very recently connected with Scott and his team, and I'm going to be presenting at their safety summit on how to use the science of stories to help persuade people. (laughs) And of course, anyone who has listened to this podcast before understands why Scott immediately had to introduce you to me. (laughs) <laughs> it, it does seem like a sort of, what do they say? Kismet, right? You yes. Know? <laughs> yeah. So I'm a big believer in that. And our, our listeners know that. So oh, that's um, great. now I know we're going to come back to that and, mm-hmm. and in much greater depth, but because our listeners are used to hearing this question first, I'm going to go back to it because it, I love the way that it um, gives our listeners a better impression of who you are, a, a different perspective of you based on this question. So I know that you've been thinking about it. Tell us something that most people don't know about you. Yeah. You know, at first I'm like, I don't think there's anything interesting. And then all of a sudden (laughs) I thought of 
this one. Then I thought of a couple others, but I keep coming back to this one. So here's, here's and of course, there's a story behind it, right? There has to be a story. <laughs> so here's, here's the title of it. I was turned down by the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and of course, to perform with them? Yeah, exactly, right? Uh, I mean, I think people can tell I'm a guy. <laughs> I'm a bit older, as a matter of fact. So this doesn't make any sense. So, but I mean, that's what a good story is supposed to do is intrigue us, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know if this show is still on, but there was a reality show called DCC, Dallas Cowboys Cheerleaders, Making the Team. And about a decade plus ago, uh, our family, uh, we used to watch it. And, you know, you would see the various candidates, the young ladies trying out, and you would learn their backstories, and you would have one or two maybe that you were rooting for, and a lot get cut, right? I mean, that's just part of life, right? I I got cut from so many things as a kid. I was not a very good athlete, <clears throat> but I had fun, nevertheless. And so one episode, you know, usually they get cut for things like their kick isn't good enough, or there's a, uh, I guess, a body problem or whatever, or fitness, or some or dance routine, or they don't fit. So there was this one candidate, and there was, as I recall, they were all at a, a nice luncheon because you know part of the role is to represent the, the cowboys. And so they have to be, you know, good at going to lunches and eating properly and all of this sort of stuff. And they have someone to teach them who's good on etiquette. And this one young lady, they they started asking the candidates questions about football, and then questions about, of course, the Cowboys. And this one poor young lady, we felt so bad for her. She couldn't answer anything. She did not know football. She did not know the Cowboys. I mean, you know, I follow football only a little bit. Um, I'm not a huge Cowboys fan, but I I could have probably done better than, than she did, which is really quite sad. (laughs) and she got caught and we were like oh my god that's so sad and my uh, wife at the time uh, who helped me with the business I was in business for myself as a sole proprietor consultant and trainer I did a lot of training and I trained people how to teach others which is really how do we learn that's what my master's is in adult learning and so my uh, wife said hey honey you could teach them You could teach them all about the Cowboys. You could teach them how to learn. Why don't you do a proposal and send that? And I thought, what a great idea. Oh, my goodness. I've got to do this. So I did what I always do when I'm trying to be creative. And I went out for a run in the woods. (laughs) And so anyone that needs a boost of creativity, do something physical like running, walking. I bike every morning and that helps. I came up with a proposal on my run. I got back. I typed it all up. I showed it to my wife. She thought it was good, made some tweaks. I sent it in, sent it in. And I don't know how long it was. Actually, Sarah, I have the actual, I dug it out of the file just for you. I have the letter on Dallas. Oh, hold it. Can you hold it? Stationary. Hold it to the side. I'll take a screenshot and I'll include it in the blog post. So oh, I can sure. See your face too. Let's see your face too. 
Uh, hang on. <laughs> How do you want me to do this? I cut off the light. Got it. Perfect. <laughs> okay. So here's what it says. May 26, 2010. Oh, it's from Kelly Finglass, the director. And to my name, address, my company name, Claims Education Information Training Hub. Spelled out my dad's name, Keith. Another story. Dear, it's very brief. Dear Mr. Klain, thank you for your interest in the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. While your proposed program is very impressive, at this time, we are not in a position to accept any proposals for educational training of our training camp candidates. Thank you again for your continued support and interest in the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. We do appreciate your considering us. Best regards, Kelly. Hand sign. Uh, Hand sign wow. by Kelly there are lots of people that don't ever get any kind of response. So that's actually pretty impressive. I was thrilled. And you can tell I was so thrilled I saved the thing, right? <laughs> 10 years later. <laughs> that's a great one. I love that. And you, one of the things that this embodies for me is the whole idea that you can't be a storyteller if you don't make stories to begin with. You have to be a story maker. You have to be willing to take that step, to take a risk, to do something a little different from what you would normally do. So you end up with the story afterward. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, obviously very fascinated by stories. I study stories in, in my PhD program. It's what my dissertation will be about. So tell me a little bit about that because um, Scott gave me a little heads up and then you told me a little bit by email. Mm. I'm curious um, if you can describe it to to me as if I know nothing about it. Yeah, sure. Oh, of course. So stories are powerful in many, many ways. And one way that they're powerful is they affect our risk perceptions. So how we, how we perceive risk, how we see it. We think risks are somewhat objective, scientists do, but the truth of the matter is we're all humans, we're all subjective creatures. So what is the lens and filter that we perceive risks through? <clears throat> so I study this intersection, if you will, we often say the nexus, but that's just a fancy way of saying how does one affect the other, right? And vice versa. Right. So how do stories affect risk perceptions and how do risk perceptions affect our stories really and so it's this it's this it's this back and forth if you will this interplay that in science we we have been unfortunately trained not to value stories because uh, they are thought of as anecdotes and anecdotes are considered more like a single data point and so people are very in science sadly dismissive and it creates a problem, as I'm sure you would recognize. It's hard to relate to someone who's just talking to you about science and data and information, whereas stories provide a way to relate, context. It's called a sense or meaning-making tool. Um, we actually, uh, for a, this, is, this has been studied, the, the phrase is uh, empirically studied, meaning they've been able to observe changes in, in our blood, that we secrete different hormones when we experience different parts of a very well-told, emotionally-laden story. That's amazing. I just read an article. One of my friends, Karen, sent me an article about the fact that our hearts beat nearly in synchronicity when we are listening to the same story. 
So um, when I mm-hmm. share a story at a, a cane, if I'm doing a keynote presentation and I share a story, everyone in that room, 300 people the last time I did this, our hearts were beating in synchronicity or at least close to it. Really? Beating up at certain parts and mm-hmm. slowing down at certain parts. But I just read this article that they were testing this and they didn't associate it specifically with what parts beat at different tempos or whatever. Like, are you telling an exciting part of the story? Is this an emotional, sad part? Is this a happy part? They didn't break it down that way. They just said when they looked at the heart rates, listening to the same story, mm. it didn't matter if we were in the same room or 2000 miles and, and 14 hours apart, that story would draw out a, a synchronicity in, in, our, in our heartbeats. Uh, I am not surprised in the least. And I would love to see the article. If you can please yeah, send me it, I would love to read it. I will. And I'll include a link to it in the blog post associated with the podcast. Oh, that would be great. Absolutely. It's it's amazing. It's fascinating to me, this, the, the science behind stories and how impactful that really is. I, I have no surprise about that research, Sarah. Yeah, me. I wasn't surprised either, but it sure is nice to finally have these aspects of research confirmation for what I've been doing for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been telling people for years, the stories you tell matter. They, they matter for your internal messages and they matter for how people perceive you. So oh, if you absolutely. have a goal, yeah, if you have a goal, you want to influence somebody to do something, mm-hmm. knowing the right story to share is going to make a huge difference in that relationship. So I, I love this idea that it affects your um, aversion or perception of risk. Mm. And the reason, the first thing that popped into my head is, when I think about the risk of mountain biking, I live in a very highly mountain biked traveled area. Helena, Montana was actually named a, a silver destination by the International Mountain Biking Association mm. because we have such an amazing array of trails. And they, a couple of them end right next to a, a fabulous award-winning brewery. So it's <laughs> a really good place to go mountain biking. I've gone a couple of times and I get so uncomfortable because it feels like such a huge physical risk to me. Mm. And um, I have heard stories, like Mm. some of my good friends who have taken big tumbles and broken collarbones and been stranded, you know, without a signal with a broken leg or whatever. Mm. And um, that risk really makes me uncomfortable. But when I talk about that with a friend who is a mountain biker, she's like, oh, it's not that big a deal. Her perception of that risk is not the same. But if she thinks about getting up on stage and performing, singing, <laughs> keynote speaking, whatever, all those things that I do all the time, she's like, oh, hell no. <laughs> it's not my idea of a fun risk. Yeah. So no, that's the first thing that popped into my head. I totally get it. So uh, you probably know uh, who he is, but I'll, I'll ask it this way. And that way uh, you can see if you know uh, the name. Uh, and your listeners can as well. Our listeners can as well. Alex Honnold, H-O-N-N-O-L-D. So if you ever saw the uh, film Free Solo. No. About, uh, you know, so free solo climbing, right? So rock climbing without a line. So he, in a very good way, has a, a, a neat quote. <clears throat> and he says, I differentiate risk from consequence. 
He said, yes, falling off this building, he climbs buildings, <laughs> falling off this buildings is a severe consequence. But for me, it's a very low risk. And I read that and I thought that's so true. So here's the thing I'm used to, this is the curse of knowledge. I'm used to people that if I'm speaking to other, you know, safety and risk professionals, they typically understand uh, the science of what risk is. So risk is of course the, the likelihood, the probability of something going bad, right? But it's really three factors. It's the severity of the impact. If he falls off a building, he's gonna die, right? Once you hit, I think it's 50 feet, I think it's four or five stories. Once you hit four or five stories, the odds are no longer in your favor that you'll survive. That's the quote unquote tipping point, no pun intended, I guess. The uh, <laughs> other, so severity of impact is one. Um, likelihood, probability is, is the second. Most people know that. And then it's exposure. And so exposure can be how much, how exposed are, are you? Or when we're trying to assess and manage risk, it could be how much exposure is there to the greater population of the people we are trying to protect, right? And so Alex Honnold is an amazing climber and a consummate professional who practices nonstop, prepares incredibly well. So for him, the risk is very low, whereas for someone like me, the risk would be very high, even though the impact and exposures were exactly the same. Mm. And so that's really what separates, say, you as a, a mountain biker from others. And I can totally, I, I can identify with what you said about speaking in front of groups. I've spent 30 plus years speaking in front of groups. I mean, if someone dragged me off the street, said, can you please talk about this subject to this random group of people? I'd be like, yeah, sure. What do you want me to say? No sweat, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where somebody else would be just peeing in their pants. No way. Are you kidding me? <laughs> exactly. Whereas if it's like, can you come and sing? Uh, sorry. No, 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 no. You don't want that. Too painful for everyone we else. We still get nervous. We still get nervous. I mean, at least oh, yeah. I do. I still get nervous. Um, but the but the risk is different because I, yeah. I understand that because I do it a lot. But um, so in exposure, does that also include the number of times you do it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's, I wanted to make sure I was clear. Frequency. Because if he, um, the more he does it, the more exposure he has, right? But he also is increasing his capacity, his skill, right? Yes. So change it too. Yeah. So let me, let me, let me explain risk this way in a, in a little story. And I had risk explained to me by my dad when, when I was 10 years old and got my first uh, road bike, it was a bright, bright green Schwinn varsity 10 speed that I got probably 50 years ago. And he told me two things. This isn't the story I want to tell, but I love talking about my dad. Right. And he <laughs> said, Johnny, there's always someone coming. Right. So that's operate in the frame that it's like, you know, the gun's always loaded, et cetera, et cetera, right? There's always, there's always someone coming. And then we had a wonderful conversation that I've written into creative nonfiction to try to help people understand risk. Because I used to work at University of California, Davis, and Davis, California is the biking capital of the U.S. The Biking Hall of Fame is in downtown Davis. So the other thing that my dad said in this place to the story is, hey, Johnny, remember, 
there's a lot of people in heaven who had the right of way. <laughs> right? My dad was full of these sayings. And I thought, where does he get? My God, he's so smart, all of these things. I don't think he he came up with them on his own. I think he borrowed them from others, right? But they're great sayings, right? So so here's here's how our brains can trick us, and here's how our brains can save us. The flashing crossing light almost killed me three times out of 500 times. <laughs> right. So you go three times out of 500 times, you almost die, Joan. What, what the heck happened? So that's, I mean, that's what risk is. You go, well, the odds three out of 500, what's that? One out of 167 ish, right? It's not bad, but I could have died. So uh, it was in Davis and I'm crossing the road on my bike. And you know how uh, in the middle of a block, you know, you got the traffic light at one end, traffic light at the other and mid block where all the bikers, all the pedestrians, all the scooter people are crossing, there'll be a crosswalk, but not red, yellow, green, flashing white or flashing yellow light and a little button you have to hit. And so the motorists are supposed to know if the light's flashing, you have to stop so that the pedestrians and bicyclists, et cetera, can go by. So our brain is wonderful, but it uses tremendous energy to think about things. So it likes to create shortcuts heuristics, mental shortcuts. And so one that the brain created, my brain created was hit the light. I wait, I look, it's flashing. I make sure this is the first time traffic stopped. I pedal across. Now that took a lot of thought. That's Daniel Kahneman's slow thinking, but the brain gets used to that. So after the umpteenth time hit the light, the brain says, hey, dummy, you hit the light go, because that's what you've been doing the last 38 times or whatever, or 152, or whatever it is. Our brain says, this is easy. It's a mental shirt. And so I ride, and this was on a, not a road bike, this was on a little uh, mountain bike, just a little cheap one that I had. And as I was starting to go across, my fast thinking brain saw motion. Right. And this takes way back to like on the savannah when predators were everything and that was motion. And because I always ride with my hands on the handlebars, I jerked to a stop immediately. My fast thinking brain caused me to stop. It overrode the heuristic. Right. And I was prepared, not lucky. I was fortunate, but I was prepared for it. And I jerked to a stop with about 18 inches between me and I'll call it a predator because it would have killed me, right? right? And so, you know, I heart beating, maybe I swore at the guy, whatever. Uh, there's a cognitive bias involved in that. <laughs> and yes, then I continued. And I did this for a year and I figured it out mathematically. It was about 500 crossings. And I know three times I went through this routine of jerking to a stop because I wasn't paying enough attention because my brain tricked me into thinking, but my fast-thinking brain saved my life. Hmm. And there you go. That's risk, risk perceptions, uh, heuristics, fast-thinking versus slow-thinking brain, and and story. So if you could relate to the story and see yourself in the story, as you know, as a storyteller and and helping others with stories, that's what we want. We want the, the listener, the reader, the viewer 
to be at least identify with the character, usually the protagonist, right? Maybe the antagonist, maybe others. And then if we're really lucky, get transported into it and feel like they are the character, living it vicariously. Right, right. And the same part of my brain is lighting up as the one, as the, the part of your brain that's lighting up. Yeah, we could we we could talk about mirror neurons and all of that. I love that stuff. (laughs) That is fascinating, and I love this idea of being able to describe risk through story Mm. because most of us aren't scientists, and most of us aren't probability specialists, or Mm. have our brains tuned in to that particular area. Um, And so, I I love this idea. I keep coming back to these these the the um, language that your father used with you because I have two boys. They're grown now. They're twenty and twenty three, and I think about how we talked about risk and the stories. Now that I look back, so for instance, um, we live in a small town and it's a pretty safe place as far as you know, uh, kids being able to run around crazy like like I did as a child. Most places, uh, parents are far more protective and far more helicoptery or snowplow mm-hmm. is the new word that I've heard for it, where snowplow? they just completely remove all potential um, obstacles for their kids <laughs> instead it. of helicoptering over them. Yes. Good, good metaphor. Thank you. It is. And it's perfect. I've heard this and I've seen it in action and it's frightening. Um, But I remember walking through our neighborhood with our boys when they were little because they could walk to the library by themselves as young as five and seven years old. And um, we would walk together and I would point out the houses of the people that we knew. And they would remember. And I would say, oh, that's Thomas's house. Remember, his mommy and daddy are Kate and Wade. And we would we would point them out. And then one of the comments I would make periodically was, if you ever feel any kind of fear, if your instincts tell you something's wrong, you know exactly what house is closest to you that you can go to. Yeah. And it was um, it was great. There was a time where our younger son was riding his bike home from the high school and um, he felt like he was being followed. He just had this weird and he's. He's highly aware. This is not both boys. The younger boy is is more highly aware. They're both very situationally aware. But Mm -hmm. anyway, he just had this feeling and he wasn't sure what it was, but he went to the first house on that block where Mm -hmm. he knew the person and he dropped his bike and and went and knocked on the door and they opened the door. And um, he said, I just talked to them for a second. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw a van go by me. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, did you see anything about the van? Did you see the van again? Do we need to report this to the police? He said, well, I don't know. Maybe you should check with the other neighbors. Hmm. And I immediately reached out to two other neighbors and said, have you seen a suspicious van around? And yes, as a matter of fact. And there had been a couple of um, attempts at abduction over that week. And um, in our little town. You know, so it happens everywhere. But I remember mm. thinking he knew exactly what house to go to. We've been practicing this. And mm. it, it limits the risk of him dri- riding a bicycle back and forth to school if he knows his safe zones. That's mm. great. 
that that's really great. And it's, you know, it's those sorts of things. So uh, I'm like you, although I'm a bit older <laughs> and my kids are older. I have two boys. Uh, one uh, lives with me. He, he uh, uh, works as a landscape architecture designer and like me, telecommutes, right? So he's, he's 27. And then his older brother, uh, who's 31, uh, lives with his mom back in Maine. And very, very different because uh, he has special needs. And so, you know, for me, similarly, when I was growing up, went outside at the beginning of the day, ran around, my parents never worried about anything. There wasn't the constant stream of news, the news cycle 24 seven, like it has been for a while. And there was no worry. We lived in a great neighborhood. I'm part of the very end of the baby boom, tons of kids, no, no worries whatsoever, but life has changed for us. And so a story like that, another mom, a parent, a dad, really, you know, yes, a mom might identify with you better than a dad, let's say, but I think I still think a parent is a parent. Mm -hmm. And think about that. And usually what happens is, so I formed a visual in my head, right, of a young boy on a bike, going. And of course, this, you know, a windowless van and, and all of that were very, very visually oriented, you know, humans, for the most part, and we have a bias towards coming up with available uh, images. So whatever we have seen, uh, and remembered recently, we typically pull from I've got look, I've got 55 years of memories, if I don't count the first five years, I'm 60, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I don't pull evenly from all of that. This was researched by Daniel Kahneman and his research partner, Amos Tversky, and others too. I could have that. I think Slovak might have done some as well. And so, uh, you know, memory is only so good, right? <clears throat> I'm going to blame COVID brain fog on everything that I forget from now on because I've had COVID. Oh, you're doing great. <laughs> yeah. And so we don't pull evenly. We pull from recent stuff and things that had a very high emotional level to it. So something like a story, especially when it's visual, creates images in, in our heads that we can easily relate to. You build context into a story, meaning into a story, uh, emotions into a story. And there are researchers, you know, as we say in, in research, I stand on the shoulders of giants who came before me, right? I mean, mostly I'm quoting other, other people's research um, that, that indicates stories are what kept, kept us alive. And today, stories still keep us alive. Mm -hmm. your, your story is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. it, it is fascinating, all the, the newer research coming out about personal narrative and how it shapes mm -hmm. our identities. Um, there's a, a bunch of stuff going on in Western Washington University. Uh, uh, Kate, oh, McLean is one of, Dr. Kate McLean is one doing just amazing mm -hmm. research on identity and narrative and the effect of that personal narrative. Amazing stuff. I interviewed her a couple of years ago. So I'll, I'll have to send you the link to that interview. It was fantastic. Yeah, please so do. I will. She's doing great stuff. So I'd love to come back to, I know my interest in storytelling has been going for a long time. And I kind of fell into this area of um, coaching. It wasn't something that I thought, oh, this is what I'm going to do. It, it just kind of 
landed in my lap when somebody asked me to do a keynote on storytelling. <laughs> I remember thinking, really? <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, sure. I could do that. Um, so I know that that's, that's part of my story is that I fall into things pretty often. So I'm curious, what drew you into this area, especially particularly as a scientist in risk management? Mm. Um, what, what was one incident that you were like, oh, that story really affected this? Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, so part of it is I grew up at my father's knee and my father was a shoe salesman you know, on the road, not like Al Bundy <laughs> selling shoes, although that's how he got his start in, in his parents' shoe store. And my, you know, salespeople like my dad tell wonderful stories. He was a great storyteller. So at a very early age, I was exposed to a tremendous, you know, amount of stories. And I went on the road, on road trips with him every once in a while. I saw him in action. He told me, he told me stories. I came in to, I think this is part of it, hearing, hearing, this is one incident, one, one pivotal, pivotal moment, I guess I would say. Well, so many. All right. So my dad, my dad was in the Navy in World War II. He was young and in at the tail end, but he served in the Navy. He was on the light, uh, light Cleveland class, uh, Cleveland class light cruiser, the USS Birmingham. And they saw action. And like most of the veterans, he didn't talk about it. And then, and we have we have a, a an ink drawing. I don't have it here of the Birmingham. I, I have a uh, I have a photograph of it. And one day, I was sitting at the kitchen table with him, and I uh, honestly, Sarah, I cannot remember what we were talking about. But all of a sudden, he launched into pun unintended, um, talking, telling me about what it was like in, in the Navy. And one of, the, one of his stories was not about himself. He said, we were under attack. Uh, he was stationed off of, uh, they were in the Pacific near Okinawa where they saw action, part of, a, uh, you know, part of a, a larger fleet, of course, and protecting the others. And so they were taking in some action and you know, they were under attack, including by kamikaze pilots. And so there was a gunnery crew and they were, you know, shooting, trying to get this plane that was going to crash right into them. And, and the, the, the rule was you kept firing until you no longer could, and then you had to take cover. That was the accepted practice because, you know, you, you didn't want to just keep at it while the plane is about to crash into you. You took cover whenever it was the right time. And my dad said, Johnny, there was this one crew. And he said, and I, he wasn't, my dad wasn't part of the crew, but he was, he witnessed it. He said, they never stopped. They just kept firing and firing and firing, even beyond the point that, that you would stop. And he said, at the very end, they hit the plane and, and caused the plane instead of to come straight in to all of a sudden bank. And the plane literally went between the masts. It cut the lines, the wires that went between the large masts, and it crashed into the into the sea on the other side. And were it not for that crew firing and firing, including after they were supposed to stop, that that plane would have hit 
the Birmingham and certainly uh, caused damage and killed sailors, right? So imagine, and of course I was probably, I was probably a teenager when he told me that story. Now, it didn't propel me to want to go into the Navy. (laughs) I think my dad told me other stories. And I I love the ocean, but the ocean does not love me back. (laughs) The waves get to me. But it, I think what it did is it, of course, it made me bond with my dad, right? Mm -hmm. Love him even more than I already did. I named my company after him decades later. And really see him as the hero that I saw him as, even though he wasn't in the gunnery crew. He did, he, he did get injured uh, later on. But I think it also really demonstrated to me, I don't know if I was conscious of it, Sarah, that stories are such a powerful medium. And here was my dad who was sharing with me this story that I'm not sure he had told anyone else. And if he had, it hadn't been in ages. And wasn't that a wonderful bonding moment? Uh, to your point, I would be willing to bet that our hearts were in sync, literally and figuratively during that story. Mm-hmm. And I know this has nothing to do with the, the main topic of risk storytelling and narrative, but I can tell you the thing that popped into my head immediately was that um, your relationship with your dad shifted, not mm-hmm. only because of that story that he told, but because when he told you the story about other people, it spoke volumes about him mm-hmm. and his, um, I don't know, gratitude, his sense of, of loyalty. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, camaraderie with his fellow sailors. Yeah. I, I, I tell people a lot that um, if you are telling people you're an expert, you're not doing it right. <laughs> I mean, for one thing, right. For one thing, you can tell people stories that demonstrate that you're an expert. That's great. But when somebody else tells a story about you and it has that long-term impact, that's, I'm guessing that you, there's no way you would have known this as a teenager, right. but in your, in your subconscious brain, you thought only a truly giving um thoughtful person would be telling me a story about the heroism of someone else that he witnessed. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. My dad was very much that way. I mean, of course, he told me stories about himself, adventures and misadventures on the road and everything else, you know, but I think you're right. Uh, For me, the thoughts I had while you were talking, you know, part of it is how, uh, so people like you and I, doing talks and all, we are often introduced, credentialed by someone else. And when I used to do talks on how to be a better speaker and trainer and all of that, it was get introed by someone else. Don't do your own intro, right? Mm-hmm. Have someone else do the third party. But you're absolutely right. Far better that they tell their own version, right? That they own it, a story about you. That's the best way. These long, boring yeah, so Jonathan has, you know, 34 years in the business and he's got alphabet soup after his name and blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah, who cares? Who cares, right? I don't care anymore, right? right. You know, right. but a well-told, humorous, heart-wrenching, both, whatever, you know, story 
goes a long way to, to really doing the job justice, like you're saying, sir. I love that you just said that because this summer I did two virtual keynotes and the people who were introducing me are actually people who know me, that mm. we've had had a personal relationship. And um, one of them said, how do you want to be introduced? And I mm. said, I want you to tell the story of why you hired me. What did mm. you experience? Because she had the reason she hired me for this was because she had had an experience with a, a speaking engagement that I had done earlier. Uh, tell tell the story of that experience and that you wanted to bring it forward to this larger audience. Oh, sure. No, absolutely. Don't, don't give them all my credentials. They can no. look that up. I have a LinkedIn profile. They can see it on my website. Yes. All of the stuff. This is all the years I worked in public sector and blah, blah, blah. I said, that's not what they want to hear. They want to hear why me? Yeah. Why did you pick me for this? particular audience and for this particular topic. So I people, love that you just said that. Yeah, look, people, and I've told stories, um, sorry, just adjusting something. I've told, I feel short, <laughs> being too long. This <laughs> makes me feel taller. I'm not taller, but it makes me feel taller. And you know what? That's all that matters to the brain, <laughs> how we feel, sort of like risk perceptions. Mm -hmm. If I feel safe, hey, great, I feel safe. I might not be, right? But I feel safe. So um, yeah. So it, it's really all about the person. So I've done several talks lately on the, the science of stories and the power to affect our risk perceptions. And one of the things I've done in it, and I did this yesterday um, for a group from British Columbia, as a matter of fact, the virtual environment allows me to you know, present all over the place with, you know, and I'm, I'm wearing gym shorts, of course, right? Uh, <laughs> it's here in Arizona, it's quite warm. Perfect. Quite lovely, yeah. And so what I've done, and you might find this, this interesting, people that do my work, uh, look, a, a lot of what gets us where we are is our knowledge. And that's a blessing and a curse, because then we falsely believe that that's really what matters in life and to other people, competence. <laughs> But it's mm -hmm. not. It's trust, as you said. So I, I do two polls. Same question. One at the very beginning after I intro. Here's what I'm going to talk about. And one at the very end when I'm done. And the question is this. How much trust do you put in me before we start? Now that we're done. And zero to five. You know, just, you know, pick a number. Don't, don't flatter me. Pick a number. And I get zeros in the beginning, right? A few. People don't know me. They, they shouldn't trust me. They don't know me from anyone, right? But usually I get a bell-ish curve, and the center of it is usually three. I get a lot of threes at the beginning, some twos, some ones, some zeros, uh, fours, and maybe a five, usually none. And then I do my talk, and I do my talk by telling micro stories, very brief stories to illustrate the different points and do a lot. And then at the end, I say, okay, same question now, how much trust do you put in me? And it shifts by one number. The center moves from three to four, a lot of fives, a bunch of threes, maybe some twos. And if there's a one or a zero, it's very rare. Mm, so that stories, totally makes sense. Yeah, we relate. Yeah. It tells us who you are as a person, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I've, I would love to see a poll of that before and after I tell a story about um, shortly after my older son was born and a moment I had with my mother. Um, because every time I share that story, 
people in the audience tear up. You, uh, they can't help it, men and women. And um, so that's a good idea. <laughs> I might have to do that at my next event. You should. Oh, feel free to do it. I don't have a copyright on it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So now this brings me back to um, why why risk management? Mm. I mean, storytelling and personal narrative, they affect every part of business, every part of life. Why risk management? What, yeah. what's, what's the story behind that? What's the story behind that? So, I mean, you know, my life has been in the field of risk and environmental health and safety, often called EHS. And so since like 1987, I got hired as an industrial hygiene technologist. What the heck is that? So that's just someone who's an exposure scientist. But I quickly went from that to doing teaching and training. And so I found that I had to help people understand the risks of exposures that they couldn't see. So the difference between, say, industrial hygiene, what I'm exposed to, meaning chemicals, radiation, dust, et cetera, versus traditional safety, I can get hurt. I can fall off a ladder. I can get electrocuted. My arm can get caught in machinery, far, far worse things. I could get hit by, by a car crossing the street, right? Right. <laughs> <clears throat> the difference is, is obvious that safety we can see. I'm on a roof. I'm on a ladder. I'm working with electricity. Industrial hygiene, we can't. So the difference in risk is tremendous because what I don't see, I don't necessarily perceive the risk. And so I started to do a lot of training, work, workforce, workplace training. And then I moved quickly into teaching. I got hired as a professor in an occupational health and safety program. And then that was full-time for a few years. Then part-time, I worked teaching management courses as well. And so that brought in much more of like organizational theory and behavior, conflict management, more the softer power skills side. So I was constantly in front of people, constantly answering questions, trying to help them understand questions like this, Sarah. So I'm doing a talk on asbestos, right? Did a ton on asbestos, way more than I care to remember. And, and a person, a custodian who has to buff the floor that, that has asbestos in the 12 inch by 12 inch vinyl asbestos tiles says, hey, John, how much should I worry when I'm buffing the tiles? And it's like, there's a ton of information packed into that. How much, you know, how much do I have to tell him to answer that question? It's not simple. And so what I found myself doing is weaving it into story form and telling him the stories behind people being exposed to asbestos and what would happen to them and talking about custodians that I knew and what the risks were and what the risks were not. And I didn't even know I was doing it till I got into my PhD program and took a wonderful course on creative nonfiction from Professor Lee Gutkind. He's the editor of the journal, uh, like Gut and Kind together. <clears throat> editor of the journal of creative nonfiction, an older gent, often he is called the godfather of creative nonfiction. And Lee said, hey, class, <clears throat> there's a pattern to creative nonfiction, okay? 
narrative, data, narrative, data, narrative, data. Just keep on going. Start with narrative. Get my attention, right? Make me care. John, John, you technical guys, you give all of this boring backstory that no one cares about. (laughs) So true. Oh my God, we love the backstory. When I teach creative nonfiction, I'll stop people during their intros. Stop, 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 stop. Right, I'm bored. Tell me excitement. As Lee would say to me, John, where's the what's at stake, right? Your son's life. You're giving birth. My dad on the Birmingham. You've got to give me as your reader, John, a a way to care about you. Then weave into it your data. Do this. You can do back and forth, but the more you can weave the data that you need to share into story form, the more you will keep your reader or listener, viewer, you know, whatever, whoever the receiver is of your communication, as they say. Right, right. Well, yeah. Have you noticed a difference, though, between when you're speaking with other scientists, other researchers, and non? I I do. Um, there is, like I was saying at the beginning of our chat, Sarah, there, there's, and this is going to be part of my dissertation. So I'll let just you in on this little, you know, Woo-hoo. preview of the direction <laughs> I'm going in my dissertation. My committee, so three faculty, full professors, uh, want me to write a book uh, about the science behind stories <clears throat> and risk perceptions and why are stories used in certain ways to help with risk perceptions? And, and what is the pushback, especially amongst, I'll say scientists, but in my world, it's mostly you know environmental health and safety and risk professionals. So I'll likely be interviewing many of my colleagues to, to find out from them to do a qualitative study on how do they use stories? When do they use stories? When don't they use stories? Why? What are they, what have been the overt and, and covert signals that they've received on, yes, it's okay to use a story in this circumstance, but maybe not in this other one. So I was having a, a, a chat with one of my uh, professors, uh, Professor Sonia Klinsky. And she said, John, so maybe it's something like, you know, when you're in front of people, especially maybe leadership, maybe you've gotten pushback or your colleagues who are directors have gotten pushback. Don't tell a story. Talk about your data, whether that's good or not. You know, that's obviously different. But maybe when it's a one on one and you've got that student or that you know grad student researcher who's had a little bit of a difficulty, done something not quite right, and you're trying to have you know, in my case, a little bit of a, I will say, fatherly-like chat. (laughs) Right, a mentor, you're being a mentor. Being a mentor, and then do we use a story there, right? So it's, Mm -hmm. you know, how do I investigate this in a very open and broad way and literally see where the data takes me in the conversations that I have with others? And then, of course, use my own experience to also illustrate a lot of this. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And the reason I asked is um, when I did my first keynote to a specifically scientific audience, it was Mm. the Montana Watershed Coalition. Mm. And um, 
I, I started with kind of a scary story. It was a hard one um, about when my family was going hiking and we had been camping overnight. My husband broke his leg about two miles up from the trailhead. And I had to enlist the help of people. I hadn't seen anyone else on the trail when we were hiking, but I had to enlist the help of the few people that I ran into on my way back down to go and, and help. And it's a it's kind of a terrifying story, mm. um, but very cool and um, encouraging. But the the point was the outdoors of Montana are are hard places, mm. and you really figure out who you are when you're in an environment like that. If you I if I ever had a doubt about my strength or my ability to deal with a, an emergency like this. Mm-hmm. Those doubts were just completely wiped away when we pulled into our driveway My and I helped my husband on crutches get into the house with his leg all wrapped up from wow. having been broken and unloading the four-year-old and the six-year-old, the puppy and the 80-pound lab out of the truck all by myself. <laughs> and um, so any any doubts I had about how strong I was were wiped clean. And um, that was the context of the story. And then the the rest of the um, keynote was really about why does that story matter? Mm-hmm. What do you learn about me when I tell that story? And and what trust do we build? And if you as a scientist can't tell a story about mm-hmm. the outdoors that you experience, the reason you are so devoted to water conservation or to talking to ranchers and farmers and um, fishing guides to create a collaborative environment to make this work. Why does that matter to you? You have to tell a story like that. Like when you were out and with your father going fishing, and this is why it matters to me. And I remember um, it was very quiet in the audience because it was a whole bunch of scientists. (laughs) And I remember um, it was the first time I had done a keynote and not had engagement. I mean, I had here and there, but it wasn't nearly the energy that I'm used to getting out of my audience. And I remember finishing and I I got a round of applause and, you know, I think they would feel bad if they didn't. Um, But I remember kind of thinking, wow, maybe, maybe I have some work to do on this. But within minutes, at least a dozen people came to talk to me. And one of them said, this is exactly what we needed to hear. So I guess the reason I ask you that question is, Mm. um, it seems to me that even scientists love to hear a good story well told. We're humans, right? So I mean, mean, if you, if you think, if you, if you look at my background, I've got uh, Albert Einstein on, on the bottom of the J and um, um, Sheldon from Big Bang Theory. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> my little nerd area, right? Opposite brainiacs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I lo- uh, love Albert Einstein. Wonderful quotes, including that imagination is more more important than knowledge, right? Yes. Which is wonderful. And so <clears throat> we're all human. <clears throat> Scientists have been trained to look for data and value data. But as as the person who came up to you and others said, this was exactly what we need. And you know, there are a lot of efforts in various scientific uh, forums and organizations and and training and all, how how do you tell the story behind your data? Because that's what people um, value. I got to attend a a talk and a workshop 
<clears throat> by uh, the, the manager of communications for the American Chemical Society. He might've been one of, of many because ACS is, is rather large. And this was, you know, for my PhD program, a bunch of us students. Who, who does he teach? He teaches scientists, right? ACS, American Chemical Society, how to, how to tell the story behind their data to what he said. I'll do this as a question to see, see what you think and your listeners, of course. The, what he described as the toughest audience, at least in the United States. The toughest audience in the United States for scientific research? Well, so that's the that's the key here. So in other words, scientists are, I'll give you a hint, are testifying regarding oh, their science. Yeah, politicians uh, and policymakers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's where I was going to go right away was yeah. policymakers. Well, and and you know, so some some congresspersons are 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 well versed in science, many are not. <clears throat> And we could go down that rabbit trail if we want, but I won't no. take us there, of course. <laughs> Not in 2021. <laughs> well, I think I know better than that. <laughs> but, but, you know, a story well told will get and keep our attention. Data mm -hmm. will not. Data by itself right. will not. And so that's what he did. And I learned a lot from him. I was already interested in this area. I asked my advisor, Professor Andrew Maynard, who is a, a wonderful associate dean and professor and my advisor and deals with risk innovation. Um, he's a former aerosol mm -hmm. physicist, and he wrote a lot of the initial research with a team on nano-engineered materials. And so now he deals with, with uh, innovation and responsible innovation. And how do we innovate the ways that we look at risk? And, and our perceptions of risk. So Andrew and I have these wonderful conversations <laughs> about stories, the power of stories, how it works in certain ways and all, and all of that sort of stuff. And that has just, you know, to get back to your initial question with the background with my dad and, and my teaching and all just really fed into, okay, I need to choose two fields of interest, risk and perceptions and cognitive biases is one, human decision-making, or what is often called judgment under uncertainty. That's one big, big field. Mm -hmm. And the other is really, we, we said narrative, but let's just call it stories and storytelling. And along with that, casual learning and also persuasion theory and, and research. Wow, this yeah. is going to be amazing. I can't wait to read that book when you get it done. Yeah, eventually. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'll, I'll, I'll come back on in a year and let you know how it went. Yes, absolutely. I would love that. Um, and just to kind of come full circle and wrap things up in a nice bow, if our um, listeners are interested in learning more about what you're doing and uh, more about these topics, where should they go? And listeners, don't feel like you have to run and stop and take a pen out. We will have all of this information, all these links in the blog post associated with the podcast. So Yeah, sure. So there's always LinkedIn, of course. <clears throat> but I think I also gave you a couple of links. One to uh, my site for our company, the bioref.com. It's like slash Jonathan dash claim, but you'll have the link. And then I think I think I may have given you another one for uh, Arizona State University. 
uh, to, you know, me and the research I do. I'm not sure if I sent that, so I'll make sure I send you that one as well. And like you, I can never remember these things because it's got so many different, you know, things, et cetera, et cetera, yes, to it. Yes, yes. I need a story to remember the links. <laughs> it would be so much easier. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. I started doing my passwords with um, phrases as parts of stories. And that seems to, because they're, those are really hard for other people to know, but it's really easy for me to remember based on a phrase of a story. So, yeah, as a matter of fact, for people that are trying to memorize uh, large sets of, of things, numbers, et cetera, et cetera, people who compete in memory contests, I forget the exact name of this, but it's like the, uh, the, the, the tour of the house of memories. So you basically take the different things that you're trying to remember and you weave them into a story having to do with like walking through a, a house or a location or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, and you may, the more you can make it into a story, not a random set of different objects or whatever, uh, the more likely you are to remember all of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love TV shows, detective shows that, that show that kind of, memory and the way that some detectives do it. I, I mean, it's TV, but it works. <laughs> it, it does work. Story to, come, works. to come back to, to Lee Gutkind, uh, godfather of creative nonfiction, he showed us the, the opening for one of, of course, many Law and Order, right? Right, so right. Says, watch, watch this, watch what they do. So of course, at the very beginning, you know, someone's going to get killed, right? A of good course. story, someone's getting killed. Or there's the risk of getting killed, right? right? And then, you know, there's the body and all of the detectives and everyone else come in. Yeah, so, you know, what do we got here, Sarge? Well, we've got, you know, 60-year-old, bald-headed male, five foot eight, you know, looks like he was trying to teach someone something and <laughs> someone beat him to death with a dry erase, you know, obviously, you know, making fun of myself. But they do this, they do this narrative data, narrative data pattern. And once I learned it, I can't stop thinking about it and seeing it where it's already being used. And there's plenty of others mm-hmm. that, that talk about the science behind creative nonfiction. I love this. I love this. I'm going to be digging into a whole lot more, I think, over the next few weeks and checking out more links. Jonathan, Great. this has been such a pleasure. We'll have to thank Scott again for introducing us. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. When when you said, oh my goodness, I really want to have you on my podcast. I was like, really? Me? Oh my goodness. This is wonderful. <laughs> but this was a blast. It's a lot of fun and I appreciate it. Thank you. Are you ready to start your story portfolio so you have the right story ready to share when the opportunity presents itself? When you're ready to get started, my book, Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will, is available in all the regular places. And the audiobook version is available on Google Play and on my website, elkinsconsulting.com. As a special bonus for listeners, the audiobook includes two songs recorded by my band, Spare Change, in my living room in Montana. Also on my website is a free podcast interview checklist. It's available to download to make sure you make the most out of your next podcast interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to rate the podcast and leave a review and let me know that you've done it so I can thank you properly. Thank you. Thank you.